This is Abrupt Future, the podcast that explores the digital, distributed, and disruptive workplace with your host, Benoit Ardivalet. Today, I'm speaking with Hayden Woodley. He's Assistant Professor of Organizational Behavior. Basic question, but that's an important one. What is a team? Yeah, it's a great question and something that I find people can struggle with sometimes because colloquially or in society, we use the word team to describe behaviors or environments. Uh, in organizations, you might have a boss say, oh, go back to your team and have a discussion. But that team consists of people working independently in specific roles. Uh, and we kind of miss or misuse the word team when actually we're talking about a group or a unit And that challenge can also change our expectations a little bit, where we expect people to operate and function as a team, where being in a team doesn't necessarily fit. So as a definition, I, I think it's pretty standard that we refer to a team as two or more individuals working interdependently towards a shared common goal. And sometimes that shared goal is one of the major challenges because people struggle to understand that it has to be shared between the individuals, which means we're both or, you know, the whole team is committed to this goal. And what you find sometimes is people have their own independent goals and we prioritize those goals over the shared goal. And that can derail whether you're actually a team. Uh, often we also have challenges sometimes, and I like to use this analogy of a bus stop where you could be waiting at a bus stop collectively and you have multiple people and you might say, is that a group or is that a team? Because the individuals waiting at the bus stop are all collectively uh, trying to get to a destination. They're all on the same objective, same goal. And so you might perceive it as a team. But what's important there is to understand that each individual is focused on where they are going individually and not the collective. So they're, yes, waiting together, uh, interdependently waiting at the bus. But once they get on the bus, they're going to sit independently. They don't need each other to get on the bus. If the other people weren't there, they could still wait and get on that bus. Uh, and then they're all going to various destinations. And at that destination, they might go in separate directions. So that is a group of individuals or a unit of individuals uh, waiting for that bus, but they're not a team. A team would be such that each person would need to go together and that they would be on a shared mission and be supporting each other, maybe helping each other on and off the bus because of those needs that they might have or support. So um, I think that example can help us disentangle that and something we need to do a better job of in our workplaces of understanding those differences. Yeah, because you can have the very uh, organizational map understanding of team, right? You have manager X, five people report to that person, and that's a team, right? Which is, yes, it's the basic unit of the reporting line. It doesn't mean that they are working together versus, say, a hockey or a baseball team where clearly they have a shared goal, but also clearly they have to work together. There's, there's something lateral, right? There need to be some kind of interaction and complementarity in what people do in the achievement of the goal. Otherwise, we're just talking to a bunch of people. Exactly, right? And, and 
you know, sometimes, well, it's the shared goal is, oh, it's the HR department. So our shared goal is the HR functions and trying to be successful in the organization with how HR operates. But the challenge is, okay, but do we, do we have that shared goal? What is the shared goal? What does that mean? And how does that come together and manifest within our group? What I think is also interesting, and there's research on this, and the fact that sometimes being a team is less effective than working independently. So we can sometimes force a team on a structure because as humans, we desire, we're social beings. We desire being around others and being connected. And the concept of a team sounds positive. And psychologically, it sounds rewarding and can fill some of our basic needs to be connected with others. However, it doesn't mean it's the proper solution in a given moment. And there are examples of organizations that have switched their culture to be very team-based, and they either found it had no effect on the overall success of the organization or sometimes even a negative effect. So um, it's important to understand then when you're, when you're referring to a team, there's pros and cons that come with that, and you want to make sure you use them and use the term appropriately so you have a good shared understanding of what you mean. Would there be type of task or activities that teams are better at, at solving and then others that you might as well have individual accomplish? Yeah, I think the best example I can think of with that is the creativity innovation process. So often sometimes we use the words creativity and innovation interchangeably, but for me and to my understanding, especially within the design literature, creativity is the generating of ideas. And then the innovation is the application of that idea to, to produce a product or an innovation. And that idea creativity phase, research on brainstorming and, and the last meta-analysis that I saw in this in the kind of the psychology field uh, back in, oh, I think it was 1991, uh, was showing that when you brainstorm as a group, when you do that creativity part as a group, you get fewer ideas and poor quality ideas because there's phenomenons like groupthink, group polarization, social pressure, not feeling psychologically safe, not feeling like you have a voice that can burden this process. But also, you know, someone shares an idea and you think, oh, my idea is similar to that one, so I won't say it, right? And it, so there's barriers that prevent us from speaking up. Where instead, if you're brainstorming, separate individuals, have them independently come up with their list of ideas, bring that list together, cross off the overlap, but you still get a wider collection of ideas and better quality ideas. That's clearly a task where you want to start and do that independently and not use a team. So brainstorming is best done as individuals and not as a group. Now, the next step, though, that innovation process which one of these ideas are we going to select? Well, that's where you can reap some of the benefits of the collective because that's a complex decision and requires various perspectives and viewpoints. If you have just a single perspective on something, they might be blind to other ideas or, or problems or challenges or, or benefits of certain ideas. So by giving people a voice and feeling like you can eliminate the ones off that list collectively, you can then get to a better collective solution, if that makes sense. So that's the part where that iteration, that innovation, often that requires a team because it's so complex and there's moving parts and perspectives that one person might not have the capacity to do that. So you can reap the benefits of a team by helping you make those decisions 
in such a complex environment. And this is what I think design thinking captured well, because I facilitated and participated in a lot of these sessions. And you will always have what has been called divergent thinking, but really it means think for yourself, right? With all, all the biases or the pressure of the others. And then once you generate your ideas, then you mix them with others. And then, like you say, you remove any redundancies. You typically get more uninhibited thinking, right? Because not everybody is comfortable thinking out loud in front of people. But once you get these ideas, then you can start differentiating between the, the good one and, and the bad one. So I guess we're, we're hopefully we're slowly moving out of good old brainstorming. All right, folks, let's come in the conference room and let's brainstorm on that problem. Yeah, I, I find that amusing. One of the things that when I teach and work with, you know, EMBAs, MBAs, even undergraduate students, is I bring that up and say, hey, you know, in the business, what happens? You need people to brainstorm. They go lock them in a room, give them some pizza and some coffee, and don't let them out until they have a solution. And that is exactly the worst thing you should be doing. So uh, I'm a big supporter of making evidence-based decisions. And evidence suggests, and we've known this for now decades, that you know, that meta-analysis I was referring to from, from Mullen and colleagues is you know, three decades old now, but you still don't see that in practice. Then there's other things where companies say, you know, research needs to catch up to the problems that we're dealing with now. And it's like, no, the problems are out there. And maybe if you fix some of those problems first, you could solve some of these other problems and issues that you're having. Maybe they're a consequence of not applying the evidence that we currently have. So that's really something I try to do is, is make research practical and, uh, and apply it and, and understand that there's key principles that we need to understand. Uh, and there's not always a best practice. Another set of principle that you studied and I'd like to discuss is the, the trajectory, right? The, the evolution of a team. Anybody who did project management 101 or even management 101, we've been told, hey, it's all about storming, forming, norming. Get them together, give them enough time. They're going to start building their own norm and eventually they will start working together. So is that like brainstorming? Like it was an old idea, but now we've, we need to, to think about something better or how's research compared to this idea so i think this is a really exciting topic for me and especially this is where i get to nerd a little bit the uh when we talk about storming forming and norming there's certain implications that have so it suggests that you know early on there's going to be some confusion and that over time you're going to get more agreement and you're going to establish your team and those early interactions are really about you know dealing with difficult times. You don't really know who you are as a team. It takes time for this to build. But recent research that I've done uh, with some colleagues at the University of Calgary and at Mount, um, Mount, uh, uh, Mount Allison University out there as well, uh, are looking at how engagement or engagement, sorry, uh, uh, emergence changes. So what happens is these, what we found in our research, especially when we look at like a confidence, like a team's confidence in their ability to perform well, is that these early interactions play a really important role in establishing their trajectory over time. So if your team stop, starts off being more confident than other teams, you tend to perform well uh, over time than other teams. So those really early interactions and those foundational early steps in developing your confidence will help you perform. And, and when we're looking at activities that they perform eight months later, they had teams that start off in the first week feeling confident did better on those than the ones who felt less confident. But 
maybe even more importantly, the trajectory we think of this kind of build and accumulation and, and, and uh, amplification over time, we actually found a trajectory of deamplification. So in general, people started off being really confident overall, and that in general, the norm was actually for it to decrease over time. So on average, the teams were decreasing in their confidence over time, and the ones that performed better over time were the ones that showed less of a decrease. So we look at this through the lens of conservation of resources, where individuals are trying to conserve their confidence resource. And as a result, if you can maintain that resource over time, you tend to perform better versus if that resource is constantly being depleted, then you're going to perform worse. So you would rather start not completely confident, but but keep it at a certain level rather than start super confident and then go downhill from there? Well, I think the starting point is the confidence is good. Just understand it's going to regress. And it's just a human function because even at the individual level, right, if you ask people how good they are at driving a car, they're going to say they're better than average. Well, if the average person is better than average, then there's, you know, that overconfidence principle. Yes, exactly. And the planning fallacy, right? Same thing. If I give people an activity and say, hey, the average person takes an hour to do this, how long do you think you're going to take? They're like, oh, I'll get done in 45 minutes, right? Then they do it and it takes them an hour and I give them another activity and say, let's learn from that mistake. And then they go, okay, 50 minutes. And you're like, did you learn? So our confidence, we tend to be overconfident when we're experiencing new and novel environments. And then that does regress over time at the individual level. And we're finding a similar pattern at the team level. So I think it makes sense. You come in and you're going to be confident, think you're going to do well, because why would you think otherwise? But then over time, you start to realize maybe we weren't as good as we thought we were, but we're still quite good. Where other people go, well, we aren't as good as we thought we were, and we're actually much worse than we thought we were. And now you've depleted that resource and it's not a benefit for you when dealing with stresses and things of that sort. As a manager, or at least as a project lead, one of the soft indicator you should have in mind is that level of, of confidence. How much of that resource you are using? Is it depleted? Is it higher than it was before? It's, it's something you should keep in mind and, and try to, to monitor and optimize throughout the duration of a project, for example. Yeah, I would argue that those initial interactions when you, the team first meets, as a leader, your job should be about gathering information and trying to gain perspective on where this team is starting at. Are they confident? Do they seem like they're getting along? Do they believe they can handle these tasks? And if they're struggling with that, try to amplify that confidence early on. Give them resources, give them support, give them necessary training, making sure they have the tech that they need to solve whatever problem that they're supposed to work on and boost that as high as you can, as early as you can. And then it's about sustaining it. So I really like the overlap with sustainability. A lot of sustainability talk talks about the environment, but really with performance and organizations, we want to, them to be sustainable. And same here in the team, we want the team's confidence to be sustainable over time. So we're going to work with them and guide them through that process. And if they have a hiccup, as in like a, a failure or a struggle along the way, that's where as a leader, you need to step in to make sure they can maintain that confidence and that they can keep building so they don't spiral out of control. I know you studied also how 
conflict can figure in that trajectory and evolution of a team, right? There's probably good and bad conflicts or good and bad timings, but do you find that their healthy level of conflicts could be productive? Yeah, and I think in regards to that research, I was very fortunate to, to be involved and really excited to work with uh, Matt McLaren and Tom O'Neill uh, on understanding how conflict kind of coexists within a team. So it was a really fascinating uh, statistical approach where I looked at uh, how task conflict and relationship conflict and process conflict coexist within a team. And what we were able to find was that teams that have high task conflict, but low process and relationship conflict are teams that perform phenomenally well, especially on innovation tasks. I was looking at student project teams in engineering where they had to come up with an innovation. And in task conflict is really just the discussing of the pros and cons. And for some people that can be tense, you know, because you're like with the brainstorming, right? You bring the ideas together and someone goes, ah, it's not a good idea. Right? If you feel like that's an attack on your person, that could become a form of relationship conflict. But if you realize and can communicate that in a way to say, hey, this is just about the work. It's not that you're not a, you're a bad person because you thought of that. We're saying, no, 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 no. We're glad you thought of that because at least now we know what not to do because knowing what we shouldn't do is just as important as knowing what we should. So keeping that focus on, on the task and not letting it become interpersonal can be super important. And that's the challenge. Um, one of the things I find interesting with that, going back to that research about how this, the, the level of confidence changes over time, what's interesting is that we also, and in our more recent work, are finding that the level of agreement between the team members plays an important role. So before we would say, we want everybody to agree on how confident they are, and the more agreement, the better. But what we're looking at and what we're finding now with some of these new uh, statistical analyses can do very complex things for us is that some of that disagreement, that reflexivity, that, that task conflict, being able to have unique perspectives and that each individual has a, a, a different understanding of how confident they are is better for the team in the long term, which is a little bit counterintuitive, right? But it makes sense in the context of, you know, when I say it that way, the people go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But historically, when we talk about it, we talk about it from the process of, oh, we want them to agree more. Make them agree. They should all agree. And over time, they should agree. And that agreement should increase. But maybe we're heading them down the wrong path because of phenomenons like, you know, groupthink, group polarization. You know, those are all situations where people have high levels of agreement. And that might be a, a bad indication. And we try to train teams to have this task conflict, to be, to reflect on what they're saying, understand their unique perspectives and bring these things together. So we might want a little bit of that disagreement. We still want them to understand their team, but we don't want them to lose that individuality within their team. And I would argue that group thing is probably one of the biggest killer of innovation and, and productivity. Because for all kind of bad reason, we all seem to think that this is the right thing, or we tell people that we expect other want us to say. So we all somehow converge on an idea that we think is everybody's idea, but really it's nobody's idea, but it's just a convenient middle ground so that nobody get offended. It's, it's kind of a slow descent toward the, the average. And it's unfortunate because it's really hard to, to break unless you have 
a leader who can really create a safe environment, bring everybody in the conversation. I think the worst case I've seen is, is you know, leaders coming saying, hey, I have this idea. Do you like it? Everybody like it? And like, okay, then move on to the next point, right? Like these pseudo meetings that are not really constructive conversation, right? There's just some kind of, of validation. So, I mean, it, it's beyond group thing, but I think there's a series of, of pathologies in meetings and teams that struggle productivity because people feel like they're wasting time. I mean, you look at all the memes about uh, that, that meeting could have been an email. I think it's because we don't have proper team meetings. We have, well, a group of individuals and sometimes one who speaks louder than the others. Yeah, I think you're you're hitting uh, the nail right on the on the head there, and the aspect of, you know, and you know, has research generally supported groupthink as its own construct? Not so much. More work needs to be done on that. It may be hard to measure, but it's a good term to summarize research on this problem. Like, why are people agreeing? Why are they just you know in that situation? Maybe they don't feel safe speaking up, and that's what's playing an important role there. But in other situations, maybe you have a bunch of agreeable people. So their their focus is on agreeing, or maybe it's a cultural thing. Some cultures uh, are, are find it disrespectful if you don't agree with people in, in senior roles who have power positions. So all these dynamics, and we use groupthink to kind of categorize all of these subgroups, but, uh, and because it helps for communication. But yeah, I think it's, it's an ongoing problem is, is that we are, can, we have a tendency sometimes to think disagreement is a problem um, and we just want to just get to the answer as quickly as possible because then it's off our plate. But we don't want to do the due diligence of getting to the right answer and we forget sometimes that it can lead to more problems down the road. And with my students even today, I, I'm not necessarily that this makes sense, but I say trial and error is a, an important part of human learning. but. An error, if we refuse to learn from it, that's when it becomes a mistake. And I find that can help them to think about understanding, look, I, I have no problem with you making errors. That's that's not an issue. But it becomes a mistake when you don't give take advantage of these kind of team dynamics and, and focus on just getting agreement and, and just settling with that and not having the difficult conversation. That part is is the harder part. But that's the part where learning and growth comes from, and that little bit of discomfort. We just agree with everybody, you know, what are we actually doing? Are we actually taking advantage of the complexity of being in a team? We talked about how some conflicts can be productive. Have you come upon other behaviors, either by team members or team leaders, that help build the team cohesion? You know, there's more research to be done specifically on that. I, I, I don't think I can give like a specific example or speak to research that has shown exactly that. In general, certain leadership styles, for example, I believe transformational leadership, so leaders who help people see a bigger shared vision, the type of leader who comes in and they speak to the custodian and say, hey, you're super important for my organization because if you don't do this job, and I know it might seem like you're just taking out trash, then my employees have to do that, right? And if they have to do that, that takes away from their focus and their work that they need to get done. So you're super important to this overall success. They create a sense of togetherness by doing that, which is what cohesion is all about. It's this collective. And what I find fascinating about cohesion is that it doesn't exist alone. 
it's a feeling or a sense that we all can say we felt we're, we're on a cohesive team or a not cohesive team, but it doesn't exist independently. It's, it's the result of being humans and in a social environment. So I think it's, it's, it's the level of fascination, which is where I'm getting to nerd again, that, that I, I, uh, I find super interesting. But that's the thing. So certain leadership styles can help people bring them together. Um, and I'm not sure about all of them, all the encompassing ones, but you know, certain personality traits can maybe do that as well. I think there's some literature showing that people who tend to be more agreeable can, can lead to that and lead to people feeling as though they're more part of a team because they're all getting along. And that's kind of sometimes the downside, though, is we talk about cohesion as being this great thing. But task cohesion, it's like we come together to complete the task, tends to have a stronger relationship with performance than social cohesion, which is the we get along with each other, we're friends, we want to go out and hang out together outside of work. Uh, it seems to have a small, a much smaller relationship, still positive, but a smaller relationship with actually the performance as a team. But, you know, what's your end goal? Is it actually the performance or is it the team being viable over an extended period of time where that social cohesion could be important? But, you know, lots of complex things to consider. There are different constructs because I can see how you have a team that gets along well by doing nothing, right? I mean, so is, is that why you talk in your research about collective efficacy, right? It sounds like you wanted to capture this idea that Collectively, there's an outcome, right? And we all contribute to it, like cohesion with a shared purpose and, and, and true outcome. Yeah, I think a lot of my stuff comes from playing sports and understanding why is one team that has less talented individuals outperforming a team with much more skilled, uh, you know, ability-wise individuals. And it's always interesting to me about that. What's that feeling? And sometimes you feel like, yeah, for some reason, as a group, we work really well together to achieve this task and we outperform our expectations of what we should be able to do. And that's what I want to understand. I want to be able to make leaders who understand those the layers to a team, that you have individuals who are in a team working on a project over a period of time within an organization, right? And sometimes those roles and goals can be competing with each other and how do leaders manage that effectively to achieve their outcomes and goals that they need that team to achieve. Sometimes it's getting them back on a shared understanding. And the reason why I was interested in collective efficacy is because my understanding of what we would call emergent states. So these are the states that emerge over time in a team, like cohesion. So if you're independent, you don't have cohesion. Teams, you know, it takes a team to have cohesion. Uh, how do these things emerge and how do they change and how can I impact that? And we know that leaders have an impact and the environment that they're in and context and the interactions between the individuals have an impact on them, but we don't necessarily know what or how yet and why. And that's really what I want to be interested in. And collective efficacy, to my understanding, has the strongest relationship with team performance. So it was clearly the where I needed to start. Uh, is understanding this confidence meta-analytically, really strong predictor team performance. So let's, okay, that's where we need to start. We need to understand how this emerges and then, you know, figure out a technique that helps us understand this and then apply that 
to other emergent states like cohesion, uh, like psychological safety, like a shared mental model uh, to see how those things emerge and evolve over time because I would anticipate they would have different trajectories because and that they're on different paths. So where you need to manage those as a leader, being the complexity of being a leader of a team, you know, how you interact with the team earlier on versus partway through versus near the end versus, you know, any one of those situations, you know, you want to know what you need to focus on so that you can be as effective as you possibly can. Remind me of an interesting paradox, right? Because you, you could be individually less talented, but collectively more efficacious, right? Again, the miracle on high is the, the American hockey team in 1980. That's kind of the archetype, but you can see in many cases, sometimes it's not about the element in the system, but how the, the element connect and work together. And, and to me, the paradox is that for so many years, we talk about talent as an individual quality, right? We hire talented people, we develop their talent, we boost their strength, we invest in their talent. But if we're all working in team, then, I mean, some talent is important for sure, but is there emergent properties we should be developing? Um, of course, the problem is that we hire and pay people, we don't hire and pay teams, right? So it's probably harder to to manage. Um, anyway, I've, I've been struggling with this idea for, for years because obviously you want to pick the best one, but you also want to have the best teams. So at some point, you know, will there be some, some tension between the, the talent and, and the team model? Oh, it does. And I honestly think you just summed up kind of one of my key areas of interest, right? So uh, in my undergrad, I did psychology, but I did an HR certificate with it. And, and my idea is that You know, I'm in organizational behavior and we separate OB from human resource management or HRM, um, but I don't see them as disconnected because it's teams have this OB feel to it, but I see teams under the HR as a gap that needs to be filled. So the aspect of, yeah, you hire individuals, um, but is that in competition with the team? I think it's a not a versus, it's an and. So when we're hiring talent, why are we not taking into consideration that they're also going to be working in a team and what do we know about that team and what that team needs so you can be more effective with your hiring system if you have a little bit a couple more predictors in your model to say yeah we need someone to work on this team with these skills but we also need this person to be very conscientious because the team needs more organizational skills and people to be a little bit more achievement oriented so that will help boost that team's performance and We know that team rewards are better at getting teams to be effective than individual rewards. So why does our compensation system not include a team reward if we highly value and use teams often to solve problems? So, and, and more recently, what I found is, well not found, but other researchers found, a study that was brought to my attention is that it's exactly that is the solution, a hybrid compensation model. If you take individuals and put them in a team, and you reward their individual performance and their team performance, those teams perform exceptionally well and better than second place being just the team reward and the worst performers just the individual reward. So why are we, these don't need to necessarily be in competition with each other. We just need to figure out a way to help make them fit together. And maybe amongst the talent or the strengths or the skills of an individual, you know, there are certain skills that relate 
to to collaboration to team building or emergent properties of team that should be also taken into action because it's true from an hr perspective you are managing a group of individuals you hire reward promote let go individual teams are managed at the local level by a manager but as an hr manager you rarely think about those teams unless there's a dysfunctional team dynamics um of course so so maybe separating these kinds of skill weighting them right because we put a lot of emphasis on do you have the skills to do the job i mean for years right org psychologists have been conducting job analysis so you look at what do you need to perform in this job and then you try to fit to find people who fit and have the right skill set to fit in the job. And you have a slot and you fill it with a new individual. And maybe if we really want to have team-based management, we'll, we'll need to evolve beyond that. Yeah, I, I, would, I, I agree. I think the challenge and one of the issues that we potentially have is when we're doing that, we get very task-focused. And one of the things that you see now more and more in Oregon is understanding that even with job performance, there's the task, the duties we do, and we focus on that. That's just task performance, your in-role behavior. What about the people who do the counterproductive behaviors that derail other people's performance, right? That, that what we refer to as contextual performance, the people who help others. So you know, what would you prefer? Someone who does a 10 out of 10, and while somebody else is doing a 5 out of 10, or for that person who's getting the 10 out of 10 to do an 8 out of 10 on their own work, and then help that other person so that they also get an 8 out of 10. If you look at those averages, you're getting seven and a half as an organization on average versus an eight. And that little improvement at the sacrifice of one, but the benefit of the other, really will benefit your organization in the long run. And this is why I think right now it's about validating what this emergent process is and how it relates to effectiveness. A lot of the times we have to justify stuff in our field by saying, look, it relates to performance, they'll do better. And then we can say, okay, so how do individuals contribute to this emergent process? And are there different trajectories that teams go on? Because we know that there's variance or variance in range in their early confidence. Well, does that dictated by the personalities of the people on the team, the skills they're bringing, the knowledge they have, right? there's their attitude towards being in a team. Are these, this mix of things impacting that early confidence? And then How's that confidence changing? Are some teams starting off really confident because they're very, you know, narcissistic and they come into the environment and think, hey, we're going to be awesome because we're amazing. We're all amazing people. And then they start working together and think, oh, I hate you and I don't like you and I'm still fine, but you guys are the problem. And then that confidence starts falling off. So maybe those individual differences have important implications for how this emergent process happens and plays out. So I think future research, not to give away what I want to do and hope nobody take, beats me to it, but uh, you know, down the road, those are the kind of questions I'd like to see answered. And if I don't answer it, I would love to see other people do that. So. Well, and, and one thing that's interesting also with that is that sometimes ideas get formalized by technology. And if you look at all HR technology now, it's a formalization of that individual-based model, right? I mean, you have a position, you move a nod into another team, Everything is based on this idea that we are hiring, rewarding individuals. Now, if, if we can develop a more 
emergent systematic approach for team-based management, then the technology will have to evolve as well because clearly it's in the individual paradigm still. So technology is amazing at how fast it can grow and increase and, and the statistical model we use to even test this emergent process. You know, there was a paper that came out in 2018, then an update to it in 2019, then 2020, a new approach, and 2021, a new approach. And, and now we think it's kind of stabilized because this year someone's going to summarize that and pull together the limitations to, and apply like a more uh, inclusive model for the analysis. But you know, look how quickly that, how that changed, uh, which I think is important to understand. And, and it's going to keep doing that. And I think we need to do that as well with how we look at teams and understand them within an organization. Well, Hayden, thank you so much for uh, spending the time with us. It was a great uh, conversation. I enjoy uh, learning from you. So thank you. Well, thank you, Benoit, and appreciate the chat. And I really appreciate the work that you're doing with, with Abrupt Future and the podcast. And I think you're, you're doing great things and I'm looking forward to hearing you again on future podcasts. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Abrupt Future. You can find more content at abruptfuture.com and on our LinkedIn page.